Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the show where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting abandoned theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. In the world of abandoned theme parks and places, Disney's Discovery Island is one of the more popular, or perhaps just one of the more well-known. Since it's Disney, there's a plethora of information and research out there. And after all, it's a physical, visible place on Disney property in plain sight of the more than 57,000 people visiting Walt Disney World in Florida each and every day. Despite this, Discovery Island has remained abandoned for two decades. This week on The Abandoned Carousel, the story of Disney's Discovery Island. I would take a bit of a lighter topic this week after two episodes involving significant unknowns and a lot of work in Google Translate. So this week, as you've already heard, I'm going to tell you about an abandoned theme park that's in the plain sight of 57,000 people visiting Walt Disney World in Florida each and every day. As with my early episode on the history of Disney's Skyway at Disneyland, it's absolutely wild to think about an abandoned ride or park at a Disney property. But of course, it's more likely than you might think, especially in Florida, where Disney owns so much of the land. I'm going to tell you right off the bat that I'm not breaking any significant new ground in this episode. You know that if it's Disney, it's been incredibly well documented. And of course, that's the case too with the history of Discovery Island. As always, though, you know that I love going down rabbit holes. So hopefully you learn a new tidbit or just have a good time, even if you're already familiar with the story of Discovery Island. So let's get into it and go over the curious case of an abandoned part of Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. Much ink, both digital and analog, has been spilled on the topic of Walt Disney, Disneyland, and Walt Disney World. In general, Disney parks are the most visited in the world in terms of attendance numbers. And individual Disney parks consistently occupy the majority of the top 10 most visited parks worldwide. And if you take all of the individual parks and properties together... Walt Disney World Resort in Orlando, Florida, would be considered the largest theme park in the world. Numbers vary by source, but Walt Disney World is said to be about 39 square miles in terms of area. This is the size of San Francisco, or slightly less than twice the size of Manhattan. The genesis of Walt Disney World is generally considered to be the opening of Disneyland itself, over in Anaheim, California, in July of 1955. See, soon after the success of that park's opening, Walt Disney was confronted with the physical limitations of the urban area of Anaheim surrounding and encroaching upon his new park. His magical-themed paradise was surrounded by this berm of land, this hill, to keep out the reality— but guests really faced a very abrupt transition entering and exiting the park. Businesses quickly sprang up close to the park around Disneyland, and they made no effort to replicate Walt's dedicated, magical theming, much to his dismay. 
So, Walt Disney and his business associates began scouting for locations for a new Disney property, the heir apparent to the success of Disneyland as early as 1961, six years after Disneyland opened. They wanted to find this perfect combination. See, they'd figured out that there was a perfect combination that so few of the parks that we talk about on the abandoned carousel actually have. And that is a temperate and desirable climate and a location near a major population center. And in addition, Walt was looking for something that Disneyland didn't have. A large quantity of land that he could purchase so that he could avoid that creep and blight that could be seen on the edges of Disneyland's tight boundaries. In early 1965, rumors began appearing in the Orlando Sentinel, the local paper for what was then a small farming community. A number of large real estate transactions had been recorded in that area. And over the next few months, many large and small land transactions were recorded to and from a variety of mysterious buyers. There was much speculation about who the purchaser was. The aerospace industry was actually considered the most likely given the proximity of the land to Cape Canaveral and the Kennedy Space Center. But, of course, by October of 1965, a journalist broke the story. Hardworking journalist Emily Bavar. She published an article in the Orlando Sentinel deducing that the buyer was, of course, as we all know, Walt Disney and the Walt Disney Company. The official announcement had been scheduled for a month later in November, but the governor was actually forced to confirm the newspaper reporting early based on her story. This was going to be the site of Walt Disney's next great theme park, the sequel to Disneyland, or maybe the better Disneyland. See, in 1966, he actually even made this video, and it was about the so-called Florida Project. It was made specifically for Disney employees and Florida legislators and locals, and it told all about the history of the project and what they expected would happen. It's an incredible piece of Disney history. It was shot just two months before Walt died. And it's only actually recently been made available to the public. You can watch it for free online. I'll include a link to it in the show notes. If you're at all interested in the history of uh, Disneyland and the history of Disney World, it's a really interesting thing to watch. So this was how they promoted the beginning of the Florida Project, the beginning of Walt Disney World. Not only that... But the whole thing was a long process, as you might guess. Before any ground could be moved, before any buildings could be built, there was actually this question of local government and legislation. Remember how large I told you this landmass was? Remember, this is an area comparable to a very large city. So between 1966 and 1967, Disney and Florida basically came together to do some legislation. And this was regarding the quote-unquote Reedy Creek Improvement District. And this was put into place by the Florida government regarding municipal concerns like drainage, waste management, pest control, utilities, roads, etc. So based on my understanding, essentially Disney was given a huge degree of self-sufficiency. From the source I read, only one governing body was required to oversee the various constantly changing nature of the project. And it also meant that Florida taxpayer money didn't contribute to the project and that Disney didn't have to rely on state agencies for project approval. 
So they had to get this legislation in place before anything could actually happen physically on the site. But once they got it approved, site preparation began. And the actual construction for Walt Disney World Resort began in the spring of 1969. Walt Disney World is big on a whole different scale, which you might not realize if you're a person like me who's never actually been there. In general parlance, of course, Walt Disney World is synonymous with both the resort and with the flagship Magic Kingdom theme park. But technically, of course, the Walt Disney World Resort is the entire property. What's now called Bay Lake was the largest natural body of water on Disney's property, adjacent to what is now the site of the Magic Kingdom. And this lake had to be drained and drudged as part of the construction process. And this is where we're going to tie in the focus of today's story, which is Discovery Island. Bay Lake was the natural lake on the Walt Disney property, and it originally had one island, the future Discovery Island. Before it was Discovery Island or even Disney property, though, it had a long history. Now, much of this section of the story that I'm about to tell you owes to a very nice and very well-researched article that only came out recently by user Gulapine over at Retro Walt Disney World. Their article traces the known history of the island prior to becoming Discovery Island, and they do this in a really nice way by following the land records and the paper trail, the bureaucratic trail behind the island. I really encourage you to go read this article as they link to all the property records and the newspaper articles that they're referencing, and they go into much greater depth than I have time to do here. So the island, Discovery Island, has a paper trail, and it had a paper trail of named owners dating back to a railway development company all the way back in the 1880s. Of course, a railway wouldn't be very functional or useful on an island, so it's not surprising that after a few years, the plant investment company sold just the island part of their land that they owned. They didn't want this island. And the island actually went through several different owners after this before being sold to one Joel Riles in 1906. And it's believed that this is the Riles for whom the island was originally named. For of course, it wasn't originally called Discovery Island. It was originally known as Riles Island. There does seem to be some confusion about the name. So there's this seminal history since the world began. And again, if you're interested in Disney history, I recommend you read this book. It was very interesting and very well researched. And it seems like people consider this like the seminal history of Walt Disney World. So Curdy's book refers to the name as Raz Island during this period, named after the family that supposedly farmed on the island back then. And of course, Wikipedia and most of the sources that copy from these places say also that it was Raz Island. But the retro Walt Disney World article stated that they could find no evidence of a property record by this name. So whether it was actually a correct term, Raz Island, or whether there was perhaps a family living there without the property, like without an official property record, you know, that could be one reason. One way or another, Riles was the actual on-paper owner. So even if he wasn't Raz, uh, he was the actual owner. And in the early 1910s, Riles let the act of paying his taxes slip his mind. 
As such, the property itself slipped back to the state of Florida. And it entered a period of what apparently had to be some debate, and we get into some really interesting transactions back and forth. See, the state appears to have sold the property to a prominent local businessman by the name of W.H. Reams. But while Reams was waiting for his official paper deed, Riles was under the impression that he still owned the island and sold the property to a man named Jim Greer, despite having no actual legal claim on the property. It seems to have resolved, however, as a few years later, Reams, the actual owner, sold the property to Greer, making a tidy profit in the process. So one way or another, the island did sort of sort itself out right there. But it wasn't the end of the drama for the island. Greer deeded the island to a presumed relation who went by the initials F.H. Greer, and he only owned the island for a few years before selling it to someone else, F.A. Rollins. And retro Walt Disney World speculates that this could have sparked some sort of family drama, that F.H. Greer could have been a son, and that selling the island so soon after his presumed parents had gone through so much to purchase it for him in the first place was just, like, just super dramatic. And to make it even worse, Rollins fell into the trap, too, of failing to pay his taxes. So once again, the state took possession of the island. The original Greer, Jim Greer's widow, Susan Greer, purchased the island yet again. So three times, they purchased the island back again. She kept a hold on to it for at least a decade, and then she decided she was done with it, and she sold the island. With all the hassle and drama that surrounded her family's land ownership over the years, she made the sensible legal decision to obtain a quick claim from the family of the tax delinquent Rollins to end any further confusion or entanglements in her ownership of the history of the island. And from here, this is where we get into sort of the more well-documented common history of Discovery Island. So Susan Greer sold the island to a guy named Delmar Nicholson in 1937, and at this time it was sold for the very princely sum of $800. Now, Delmar Nicholson was a popular local guy. He was known as Radio Nick. He was the first radio DJ in Florida, and he was considered a radio pioneer. He lived on the island with his wife Alice and apparently had a pet sandhill crane. When he wasn't running for local political office or talking on the radio, he was a botanist and an outdoorsman, and he grew a variety of orchids on his private island, among other things. And so Radio Nick, he renamed the island too. He renamed it from either Raz or Riles Island, depending on your source, to Idle Bay Isle. He actually set up the first Idamore lime grove in Florida there and apparently also grew mangoes and avocados on the island's 11 acres. Now, Radio Nick owned the island for a good while, but apparently ill health forced him to dial back the farming trade. The unsourced histories of the island describe Nicholson, Radio Nick, as living on the island for 20 years. But according to the actual land records, he sold the island after only 12 years to a couple named the Thomasons, who were living in Oklahoma. And it's actually speculated that they may have continued to live in Oklahoma while allowing Radio Nick to continue living on the island, because they also granted him power of attorney over the island for a few years. But by the mid-1950s, his time on the island was done. 
And the Thomasons sold their part of the island. They sold their actual ownership of the island to a group called the Bay Isle Club. And this transaction was $55,000. The paper described the island at this time as, quote, the most beautiful spot of its kind in central Florida, end quote. The Bay Isle Club was helmed by three businessmen who acted as the heads for a group of 10 businessmen and their wives who apparently used the island as a hunting preserve. Occasional trips out to the island were actually still publicized in the papers throughout the 50s. And as I mentioned at the top of the segment, Retro Walt Disney World goes into a lot more detail about all of the property transactions than I have time for, so please check out their article. Of course, as I've already told you, Disney was snapping up a bunch of property in Orlando in the mid-60s as they were developing the future Walt Disney World Resort. And this included the large Bay Lake and its island, Idle Bay Isle. Rumor from the well-known story about the island in common parlance is that the site of Idle Bay Isle as seen from a helicopter was actually what sold Walt on the Orlando property. Disney, under one of their many local shell companies at the time, purchased the island from the Bay Isle Club. They also followed good sense and got a quick claim from Radio Nick to ensure that all their I's were dotted and T's crossed, that he wouldn't come back and disrupt their big theme park plans. And that was that. That was how the land came into the hands of Disney. Disney now owned the land for the Walt Disney World Resort, including the single natural island. So back to the construction of Walt Disney World. Site prep began in 1967. Construction began in 1969. The opening of Walt Disney World was 1971. Now, our island was not initially touched. They just didn't have the money or the time to do that. They were focused on other areas. The island sat as scenery in the middle of Bay Lake, along with the other man-made islands that were made from the excavation work on the Magic Kingdom and the resorts. On park maps, the island was initially named Blackbeard Island, but no development had occurred there. It took until 1974 for work to actually begin on the island. Initial development involved transporting reportedly over 50,000 cubic yards of dirt to the island in order to build up its acreage. They imported boulders and trees as well. And a name change was in order too. No longer was this Blackbeard's Island. Now it was called Treasure Island. And the nominal theme was a pirate hideaway with shipwrecks and buried treasure throughout. By April of 1974, Treasure Island was open to the public. The main draw was as a quiet nature preserve, with a variety of exotic plants and colorful birds. Now, despite that actual draw, the copy on the guide map still read, quote, Look closely, mateys, as you visit Treasure Island today, for the memories still linger here of Long John Silver and Jim Hawkins, of Black Dog, of Dr. Livesey and Captain Flint, and the voice of old Ben Gunn still haunts these woods and paths, still laughing, mocking. Listen closely, as Ben Gunn's words may be the clue to where the treasure hides to this day. End quote. 
Of course, the theme was actually based on the 1950 Disney movie of the same name, which of course itself was based on the classic 1883 novel by Robert Louis Stevenson. The Disney movie was re-released in 1975, coincidentally, a year after the island opened to the public, which I'm sure helped promote the Walt Disney World attraction. But again, like I said, despite this ad copy on the maps, the pirate theme was really fairly light. The main focus was the birds and the plants. The earliest maps actually advertised four different types of cranes, as well as flamingos, macaws, cockatoos, bald eagles, and blue peafowl. The only real remnant of the pirate theme, besides the name, even at these early days, was the single beached wooden ship. On the north side of the island, there lay the quote-unquote remains of the walrus. This was a wooden ship that was beached on the shimmering white sands of the island, and kids were actually encouraged to climb on it and jump off of it. Yes, apparently it was even nine feet high at points. No, there were no safety regulations. This was the 1970s. And funnily enough, though it's hard to think of it this way now, in the 70s there were glimmering sandy beaches around most of the island, and jet skiers were even able to pull up to the shores and hop off for a look at Discovery Island. Now, there were plans for additional grand pirate-themed adventures and attractions on this island, as seen from a 1975 visitor's map. There was something called Billy Bones' Dilemma, something called The Blockhouse, something called Spyglass Hill, Ben Gunn's Cave, and another wreck, the Wreck of the Hispaniola. But none of these came to pass, as the number of birds and plants quickly began to outpace the amount of visitors actually on the island. Despite this, the park was popular. The island was popular. By 1978, the pirate theme was fully abandoned. And the name of the island was changed from Treasure Island to Discovery Island. Discovery Island was fully entrenched as a bird sanctuary and as an educational paradise. The emphasis was now truly on the island's conservational and environmental efforts, on animal care, and not on rides. The focus was also expanded beyond birds with new alligator and Galapagos tortoise exhibits and a new aviary. At one time, Discovery Island was apparently the United States' most extensive breeding colony for scarlet ibises, and the island won several different awards relating to its animal care and treatment, and it was noted for being the first zoo to breed a toco toucan in captivity. By 1981, Discovery Island was officially recognized as an accredited zoological park by the American Association of Zoological Parks and Aquariums. To put this into context, we can turn to the ever-accurate Wikipedia, which at least will give us an idea. And according to Wikipedia, there are some 2,800 different animal exhibitors, like zoos, as of 2019. And only about 10% of these, so that's 280, are accredited by the organization as of 2019. This does actually appear to be a big deal then, speaking to the company's serious intents in this area as more than just an entertainment facility.
One of the well-known stories about Discovery Island in its operational years is how it was home to the last ever dusky seaside sparrow. Yes, it's tragic. A species did, in fact, go extinct on this little island, despite efforts at breeding and preservation by the caretakers. So the history of the dusky seaside sparrow is actually kind of interesting. It was identified as a very localized species, and it was localized to Florida's Merritt Island on the Atlantic coast near Cape Canaveral. As is not surprising, of course, the downfall of this species was because of mankind's actions. And actually, a lot of it could even be tied into the space race, unintentionally, of course. See, DDT was used to kill mosquitoes in the area in the 40s and the 50s, and this did the birds no favors. In the 60s, Merritt Island and its surrounding marshes were flooded to help control mosquitoes around the space center. So two ways to try and kill mosquitoes, and both of them had these negative effects on the birds. Later that decade, the Beeline Expressway was constructed, and this was the goal of making commuting easier for space center workers. But it was built right through one of the birds' marshes. And then, of course, to the common... Um, enemies of pollution and wildfire. Each of these offenses destroyed the bird's very specific habitat. And this highly localized species was simply not genetically programmed or capable of moving elsewhere. Reportedly, environmentalists tried to rally support around 1969, but government agencies weren't interested. This wasn't something big and flashy like a bald eagle. This was just a little sparrow. There was no political support to try and save the dusky seaside sparrow. In 1973, Congress passed the Endangered Species Act. And finally, finally, some money became available to buy land for a dusky seaside sparrow wildlife refuge. But it was too late. The last known female of the species was seen in 1975. And by the end of the decade, biologists led by a guy named Herb Kale were forced to comb the wetlands for any remaining sparrows. And they found five, five males. And they were taken into the care of Kale, and he was going to try and begin hybridization breeding. Government funding began to dry up because they didn't like this idea of hybrids. In 1983, Kale instead turned to private funding and found some private funding for his hybridization efforts. So the few remaining dusky seaside sparrow males were moved to Disney's Discovery Island. In his excellent essay in the book called Wild Echoes, Charles Bergman writes, quote, The idea of a small brown sparrow increasingly an anachronism in its own life spending its final years amid the bright and exotic birds on the island, was a wrenching anachronism. End quote. Unfortunately, though, the breeding efforts were not successful, particularly because the federal government, as I said, refused to support the effort. They claimed that even an eventual 99% cross would never be considered a true dusky seaside sparrow. The last male of the species, named Orange Band, died in 1987, marking the extinction of the species. The few successful hybrid crosses were also lost. Two years later, in 1989, a windstorm knocked a tree into the roof of the hybrid sparrow's compound. 
One was killed and the remaining birds vanished. And with them, the species. In 1990, the dusky seaside sparrow was officially labeled extinct. Charles Cook, the head of Discovery Island, in an interview with the New York Times at the time, said that while the mood was serious, it wasn't all negative. Quote, people here feel that the program gave the bird a chance to tell its story, end quote, said Cook. Quote, that bird could have become extinct seven years ago and gone entirely unnoticed. Its story gave everyone a chance to reflect on our own mortality and our effect on the environment, end quote. The years rolled on. A decade after converting to the Discovery Island branding, the island seemed to be doing well. After landing at the dock, guests who visited Discovery Island walked along a winding path that made a loop around the island. There wasn't really much choice involved in Discovery Island. There was only really one path to take. They could make one decision about whether they'd take the path past Toucan Corner that became the boardwalk along the beach near the old shipwreck, or whether instead they would go through the Avian Way, a large enclosed aviary where guests walked along an elevated boardwalk amongst the trees. The paths both joined up again at Pelican Bay and then finished going around the island back to the dock, where they met up with the Thirsty Perch, a stand for light refreshments. According to rumor, apparently the birds learned about the stand, and of course, birds are actually pretty smart. They took great pleasure in stealing condiment packets, particularly the mayonnaise packets, until they were forced to be covered so that the birds wouldn't take them anymore. Though some of the animals were kept in aviaries and cages, other animals roamed free, although perhaps not tame. There were multiple varieties of flamingos in the Flamingo Lagoon. There was a bald eagle on loan from the U.S. Department of Interior displayed at what was called the mizzenmast. And in the buccaneer's roost, most of the island's crane species resided. They had at least four different kinds of cranes there. There were deer, there were swans, there was tamarind and kookaburra, there were lemurs and egrets. The island served as a home for permanently disabled animals as well, and worked to rehabilitate and release other native Florida species into their uh, back into the wild. Zookeepers and workers hosted informational meet and greets to introduce the animals to the island's guests. It seems like it was a very calm and peaceful place to visit. But life was not perfect on the island. In 1989, a lawsuit was filed against Cook and several of his employees. The allegations were many, and all revolved around the alleged mishandling of birds, including destruction of nests and shooting of birds. Most of the charges were related specifically to vultures. Disney reportedly called it a misunderstanding. Reportedly, the company claimed that the vultures, hawks, falcons, and owls all attacked other animals on the island, and that the vultures specifically were pecking at other animals and guests. And so apparently they said it was accidental, this, this sort of like nest destruction and um, apparently even shootings in the course of trying to move and control the animals, which the island had a permit to do. Investigators reportedly found inhospitable conditions, though, 
with an unreasonable number of vultures being confined to a windowless, featureless shed. In early 1990, the company settled the lawsuit out of court, paying $95,000 to avoid going to court. Reportedly, this sum was over three times the amount they, they would have paid if they had been convicted of all the charges in court. And according to the spokesperson that was quoted in the paper at the time, they wanted, quote, to avoid a costly, protracted court proceeding, end quote. Of course, the subtext here is that Disney wanted to avoid the negative press that would have been associated with a long, drawn-out court proceeding. So from that perspective, it makes sense. And even at the time, $95,000 is probably not all that much compared to the general amount of money that Walt Disney World has. So, after the settling of the lawsuit, the curator of the island was replaced, and a committee began to review the island on a regular basis for the next year to ensure that no further violations were occurring. Reportedly, this did not affect the island's zoo accreditation, that important accreditation that I told you about. And from the general sense of my research, public impression doesn't appear to have suffered significantly either. It may be evident by this point, but despite the exceptional focus on nature, Discovery Island was still a part of the Walt Disney World Resort. But it wasn't an attraction drawing in huge crowds. It was technically a separate theme park. It, it was kind of in the category of, they, they put it sort of in the category of water parks. You know, you'd like a smaller park, but not really a theme park proper. But it did still require its own special entrance ticket. At the time, about five bucks for kids ages three through nine, and ten bucks for anyone ten and up. By the nature of being an island, too, the only access, as may be obvious, was by boat. So you had to leave from one of the resorts across the lake. And the consensus is that the island was considered at least a half day adventure. So some planning was definitely required to even visit Discovery Island. Additionally, the island was polarizing for its slow-paced educational nature. There weren't rides. Guests either thought the area was calm and peaceful or dull and boring. Yes, there was a bird show. And yes, you could walk around and look at all the birds and animals and talk to the keepers. But it was essentially a zoo. A zoo in the center of an amusement park. Was this really what people wanted to do with their precious Disney vacation time? Around the same time, in 1989, Disney began planning a new theme park at Walt Disney World Resort. And this was to be called Disney's Wild Animal Kingdom and later just Disney's Animal Kingdom. Of course, though we've only been talking about Discovery Island, the world, or Walt Disney World, around Discovery Island had not been stagnant. Magic Kingdom, the flagship theme park, as we've already discussed, opened in 1971. Epcot opened just over a decade later in 1982. And in 1989, the third major theme park, MGM Studios, opened. Of course, there were also water parks like River Country and Typhoon Lagoon, as well as multiple hotel resorts and shopping destinations. 
The plans for Animal Kingdom reportedly began soon after the opening of MGM Studios, which is now called Disney's Hollywood Studios. Five years later, in 1995, Michael Eisner officially announced the project, which was now well underway, even including construction. A board of advisors reportedly helped develop the project from the beginning with the goal of emphasizing wildlife conservation. Despite some public criticism calling the future park a glorified zoo, consultants for the advisory panel saw only a positive outlook for the park, saying, quote, We're at a time when the population is growing so rapidly that the only wildlife we'll be able to save is the one we care about, end quote. Construction proceeded quickly, and the Animal Kingdom officially opened on Earth Day, April 22, 1998. In practice, as may be obvious by this point, Animal Kingdom drew significantly on the experiences with Discovery Island. With an area between five and six times that of the Magic Kingdom, the new park had plenty of space for animal conservation, much more than just birds. Reportedly, some 1,700 animals of over 250 different species currently reside in 2019 at the park, with breeding programs even allowing restoration of species from Animal Kingdom back into the wild. It wasn't all just another glorified zoo, though. Animal Kingdom is home to all the trappings of a regular theme park, including restaurants and dozens of rides. There's even a full-fledged coaster there, Expedition Everest, a Vacoma steel coaster featuring the tallest artificial mountain on any Disney property. All of this detouring, of course, is to say that Animal Kingdom nicely filled the space that Discovery Island once occupied. And... All of the cons of Discovery Island, its small size, its physical boundaries due to being an island, its boring nature, those were absent in Animal Kingdom because Animal Kingdom was an actual theme park. The writing was on the wall for Discovery Island from the moment that Animal Kingdom was announced, as guests who would have visited Discovery Island instead chose to go to Animal Kingdom. Attendance reportedly declined, and maintenance costs for the island remained high. The official closing date for Discovery Island was April 8, 1999, supposedly an exact 25 years in operation. Wikipedia claims without source that the island was operational for several more months through July of 1999 as animals were transferred to Animal Kingdom or local zoos. At Animal Kingdom, in fact, the main hub the main central area of Animal Kingdom was actually renamed to Discovery Island, supposedly in tribute to the park's roots. And there's a charming version of the island's quote-unquote last day that is available online, which I'll link to in the show notes, and it includes plenty of pictures. It's really charming to see what Discovery Island was. It really does seem like something from a different time. Quote, It's a little bit sad when we say goodbye to an old favorite but change is part of the process, end quote, said the Disney spokesperson in a statement at the time. After Discovery Island closed, nothing obvious changed. Buildings were still there. The dock was still there. The lights were still on. Yes, for at least a decade after the island was closed, the lights still went on at night throughout the island in an eerie display. All the lights 
even in the interior of the island, still went on at night, as if someone or something were still traversing it. Between August and October of 2006, the island's main dock was finally removed, leaving only pylons. From this point on to today, the only access to the island is the small employee service dock. Water travel is a regular way to get around Walt Disney World, so none of this went unnoticed. The island is right in the middle of it all. Guests documented the foliage growing up on the island's white sand beaches, hiding the sand and completely engulfing the former shipwrecked boat called the Walrus. The boat is still there, but it's no longer visible. It's completely covered over at this point by green growing plants. Of course, as this is a podcast about abandoned and defunct theme parks, we like to ask what kind of abandoned imagery is out there? Well, Discovery Island is really a well-kept secret. Access to Disney property, especially on an island in the middle of a gator-infested lake, is not an easy exploration. Between 1999 and 2017, there were only two publicly posted urban explorations of the island. One was by a guy named Nomius, and the other was by a guy named Shane Perez. Shane Perez is the one that's more notable as he's used his real name. He apparently sat on the images, not posting them for at least four years, in order to sit out the statute of limitations in Florida on being charged for trespassing. He was banned from Disney properties for his troubles, but his images are still some of the most well-known of the abandoned property. And the images reveal eerie sights, like a dry erase board last written on it in 1999, ink still visible. A snake preserved in formaldehyde inside a soda bottle. Animal cages with doors hanging open. Soda machines covered in dust and grime. And an empty minus 80 freezer once used for biological samples long since thawed into puddles of grimy goo. In 2017 and 2018, a guy named Matt Sanswa posted two different videos showcasing in very delightful, high-quality video hours of footage from exploring the island. A 2018 video from a guy named Standard Stealth similarly documents the abandoned state of the island in high definition. I strongly encourage you to check the videos out. While I do not condone their actions, of course, the images are striking. Literally a 90s abandoned Jurassic Park kind of deal. Hurricanes and storms have taken their toll, knocking trees into buildings. The unchecked vegetation growth over 20 years has led to nature more or less taking it all back. It's so eerie to think about everything just sitting and waiting and rotting away since 1999 in plain view of the thousands who visit Walt Disney World Resort each day. It just sends shivers up your spine. Rumors about the future of Discovery Island have persisted since the island closed back in 1999. There were discussions about making the land a spot for some very exclusive, very expensive villas, like those suitable for honeymooners. Other rumors swirled that the land could become a haven for nighttime entertainment, some sort of pleasure island thing. 
other people say that maybe it'll become, you know, like a snorkeling destination or something like that. And some say that the island is left in its abandoned and dilapidated state because it's a protected bird habitat. The most prominent rumor, though, is that Disney had been in talks with Robin and Rand Miller, the creators of the infamous Myst series of PC games. Of course, Myst was the best-selling PC game for several years, and it was notable for driving the adoption of the new CD-ROM technology as a standard feature on computers. I'd love to spend an hour talking about the development of Myst, its technological and design breakthroughs, and its legacy as a gaming series. But alas, there's definitely not time in this episode, and that's not really the point of this episode. If I ever establish a Patreon, though, this might be a topic that I'd post there, so think about it. So, the late 90s, Myst was huge. Myst had come out in 1993, and the sequel, Riven, came out in 1997. It was incredibly popular. Reportedly, Myst developers Robin and Rand Miller were in talks with Disney about making Discovery Island into some sort of new Myst-like experience. And for really a long time, these were just rumors. A guy named Jim Hill over at Jim Hill Media wrote a great article all the way back in 2004 about this. The rumor is that they would create Myst Island. No longer Discovery Island, this would be Myst Island where a very limited number of guests would spend a day on the island, solving Myst-style puzzles on a day-long adventure unlike anything else at Disney. Theoretically, no two guests would have had the same experience. And this was considered a test project for a new type of immersive theme park experience, an antidote to the quote-unquote wait three hours in line for a three-minute ride kind of thing that... Disney's own guest surveys reported that guests hated. This sounds incredible. I mean, to be honest, it sounds incredible and amazing. So why did this project never go anywhere? Robin Miller actually spoke with the AV Club in 2016, and he did finally confirm the long-held rumors about the interaction of Myst and Disney, saying, quote, that was absolutely true, end quote. He goes on to elaborate, quote, we went down and looked at it and walked around it, and it was incredibly mist-like. It was perfect for mist, so we were all excited, end quote. But not even Miller is clear about why the project never went forward. Of course, there's plenty of speculation, as there always is. The first is the common explanation for many of Disney's possible projects on Discovery Island. When the island was first built upon by Disney, it was a clean slate. There was just flat ground. But Disney added buildings, it dug rivers, it added a whole bunch of stuff that would now require demolition. Not only for the structures, but for all of the island's utility and infrastructure, including things like water, cable, internet, all the pipes that lead back to mainland. All of this stuff was rapidly aging and not really sufficient to handle the demands of modern visitors. But a demolition would require heavy equipment to be ferried over and then all of the demolished materials to be ferried back. It's an expensive prospect. More specific to the Mist project, any quote-unquote Mist Island would require a significant amount of cutting-edge technology. In 2019, this maybe doesn't seem that far-fetched and maybe wouldn't cost so much, 
But 20 years ago, it was 1999, and the technology picture was very different. As a reminder, Google started in 1998, the Nokia brick cell phone was the hip cool thing, and the original iMac with its candy colors was shipped in late 1998. Ultimately, it seems like it's the nature of the island that truly sinks any future for the space. It's logistical. Any supplies have to be ferried over by boat. If the only access for either guests or supplies is by boat, then Florida's sudden storms which can shutter the boat service could wreak havoc and trap guests. And there's the simple fact that Disney owns boatloads of land in the quote-unquote Florida project. There's plenty of space elsewhere where Disney could build at a cheaper cost with less maintenance, with less logistical requirements. At this time, despite the island being in a central location, there's no motivational reason for them to do anything with Discovery Island. It simply would be too expensive to build something there, and the land would not make the money back that they would need. So, for 20 years, Discovery Island has sat abandoned at Disney, weathering hurricanes and storms without any maintenance. There's no current plans for the island. It's simply another inaccessible part of the background scenery. It's now a story that folks can tell on various behind the scenes Disney boat tours that you could rent at the park. It's lost in plain sight now, overgrown and totally green. But back in the day, Discovery Island was said to be the very reason that Walt Disney himself was interested in choosing the Orlando property for his new theme park. It's said that upon flying over Bay Lake and seeing the then Idle Bay Isle, he said something to the effect of, this is it. As the Disney rep said upon the closure of the island though, change is part of the process, not only at Walt Disney World, but in our everyday lives as well. Discovery Island has changed from natural landscape to fruit farm, to hunting preserve, to theme park, and back to natural landscape again. This is the circle of life. And that's how it goes. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I told you about the history of the abandoned Discovery Island at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. As always, you can find all references linked from my show notes page on my website. For this episode, theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 24. I encourage you to check out the urban exploration videos, as well as the documentary style videos from one of my favorites, Bright Sun Films. And too, I recommend the excellent essay about the dusky seaside sparrow in the book Wild Echoes. You can find it on Google Books. It's a really gripping read. I enjoyed doing the research for this episode, and I've enjoyed hearing from listeners lately. If you've got suggestions for future episodes, places large or small that you'd like me to talk about, especially the small ones, I'd love to hear from you. My contact info is on my website. I'll be back soon with another great episode, so I will see you then. Remember, as Lucy Mon Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it.